Okay, let's bring up uh, Winston Parker. Well, I guess you guys are the overcomers, huh? <laughs> Why don't you open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 1. This morning, we're going to consider some essential truths we must embrace if we're going to be equipped to live a Jesus-like life. The Apostle Peter when he penned his second, epi- second epistle, Second Peter, he tells us as he is anticipating his own personal death, he wanted to review with us the essentials of the faith, which he said, you already know them. But he said, I want to review them with you so that uh, when I'm gone, you'll remember them. So this morning, we're going to review much of what we already know. And so if you are in John 1, just follow along as I read the first five verses of John 1, 1, beginning of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend him. Now I'm going to go back and read it again. This time I'm going to fill in the name Jesus wherever he's referred to in these verses. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Jesus, and apart from Jesus, nothing came into being and has come into being. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In him was life, and life was the light of men. In Jesus (laughs) was life. And Jesus was the light of men. Today, you and I as Christians can say with full faith confidence that real life is found only in Jesus. Could I? Oh, I did get an amen over here. Yeah. Having said that, let me read for you a couple of definitions of the word life. Oxford Dictionary. Life is the ability to breathe, grow, produce young, and etc. that men, animals, and plants have before they die and that objects do not have. They give a couple of illustrations how it's used. 
This could mean the difference between life and death. The body had, was cold and showed no signs of life. Hmm. Another dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary. Life, the period between birth and death, or the experience or state of being alive. Wow. Couple of illustrations. Life's too short to worry about money. Unfortunately, accidents are part of life. In those definitions of life, men, hmm, where's the hope? Where's the purpose? Where's the meaning in life? T.F. Eliot, in his poem, The Rock, says it this way in just one little phrase. It's always impressed me. Listen to this. Where is life we have lost in living? Think about that a minute. That can happen to us as Christians. Where is life we have lost in living? Men, that is where you and I were before Jesus Christ. Fellas, that is where all of our unbelieving friends and acquaintances are today. Do we have an urgency with the gospel? You think Dan's got an urgency with the gospel? <laughs> sure he does. Mm. Well, this morning, we're going to consider four tenets of the Christian life if we're going to live it. And let me see here if I know how to operate this. No. No. I... Uh, Oh, there, look at that. I have trouble operating scissors, fellas, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to consider these four tenets of the Christian, to live the Christian life. Authority is the reality of life. Judgment is the core of life. Faith and fear are the means to life. And love is the goal of life. Hmm. Should we get started? If you would, let, us, let me pray. <coughs> Father, uh, help us quiet our hearts. Lord Jesus, you said yourself, of yourself, when you're here as a man, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, Lord Jesus, help us hear this morning from you. Please, please, please. 
And when we ask it in your holy name, amen. First one, authority is the reality of life. God is almighty. He's authority. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Genesis 1.1 says it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> says it all, doesn't it? This is God's world. And God is a template of authority for all of life. All authority is conferred from God. Men, if you turn with me, I think it's important we read this together. In Romans 13, please. Romans 13, I'll give you, I'll give you time to get there. I'm going to start with chapter 1. Romans 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Romans. All right, I'm going to read. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1, or 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authority. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Did you hear that? Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. You want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. All governments are established by God. Let me give you some other Examples of God's conferred authority. The Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of woman. And God is the head of Christ. Here are some other God... Conferred authorities. As we just mentioned, government is the head of every person. Husbands, head of the wife. Parents are head of the children. Masters are head of the slaves. Elders are head over the congregation. In Hebrews 13, 17, says, Christians, obey your spiritual leaders. Let me just ask you rhetorically, do you have spiritual leaders that you've conferred authority to them to say to you anything they want to say that is in your benefit? Therefore, all authority is conferred by God. Therefore, any resistance to authority is resistance against God. If our wife resists 
husband's authority. In reality, she's really resisting God. The only exception to resisting authority is when the authority requires the violation of the commandments of God. Therefore, we never have a problem with another person. Our problem is always with God. Therefore, all sin is against God. King David reiterates this same principle in Psalm 51 when he is rehearsing with God and repenting for his fiasco with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Come back here. There you go. David is talking. He's praying. He says, against thee, thee only I have sinned. David understood that, didn't he? And done what is evil in your sight. Hmm. So that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. In other words, David is saying, Lord, I have sinned against you. And that means that I violated your authority, your justice. Therefore, justice has to be, and you're gonna, there's going to be consequences. And David says, whatever you decide are the consequences, you'll be absolutely right. Hmm. So notice here that King David also segues us into our second uh, tenet, and that is judgment. Hmm. Judgment is the core of all life. King David realized that authority and judgment are intrinsically related. Anytime God's authority, anytime God's righteousness is violated, his judgment is required. King Solomon, in his book Ecclesiastes, comes to the same conclusion as his dad, King David, did. The book of Ecclesiastes is a purview of all life lived without God being an active part. Then at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us his conclusions, his conclusion to live life. And here's his conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Hmm. Anytime 
God's authority is violated. Judgment is required. Hmm. The Apostle Paul affirms the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for their deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Hmm. Both Christians and non-Christians will be judged and live in eternity with the consequences of how we live this life. Hmm. Therefore, heaven will not be the same for every Christian. In the last chapter of Revelation, Jesus reminds us of this in Revelation 22:12. Just about four, five, six verses for the, for the Bible's complete. And Jesus says, "Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render every man according to what he has done." Hmm. Wow. There you have it. The first four, first two of our four tenets. Authority is the reality of life. And judgment is the core of life. Let me stop there. And um, see if you have any questions. or Jerry will be happy to answer them for you. Well, let's go on to the third tenet. Faith and fear are the means to true life. Faith and fear. Well, we've already read this, but I'm going to just want to remind us again what is true life? <laughs> It's sure more than what the uh, Oxford and Cambridge Dictionaries have, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Lee was talking about last night just how grateful we ought to be. And boy, when you think about those, just reading those, those uh, definitions, I thought, and that's where I was. What if God would have left us there? It's horrifying, isn't it? Well, if that doesn't bring gratefulness in our hearts. I call gratefulness the, uh, the dipstick of your spiritual condition. I find for myself if, if I'll just stop and listen to myself, 
Am I belly aching? Am I complaining? Grouching? Disputing with people? Well, that's contrary to gratefulness, isn't it? You can't have both of those at the same time. <laughs> I know I'm out of focus. I know I need to get my Bible and get somewhere quiet and do some repentance, and some listening, and slowing down. I don't know about you, but I try to limit myself to listen to the news. If I OD on, OD on news, I find myself getting anxious or afraid or angry. When I find myself there, for me anyway, I find Isaiah 40 is a great chapter just to read. And I just read it. We don't have time to go there today, but one of the verses that sticks out to me is, <laughs> it says, the nations of the world to God are like a drop in the bucket. That helps me get back and focus pretty quick. Yeah. Mr. Putin isn't near as big as he thinks he is, is he? Yeah. And we're not as big as we think we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're all the same, aren't we? We just don't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So what is true life? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus says, I'm the life. <laughs> you want to have life? You have to have me. Again, in John 10, 10, he says, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. When we think about where we were and where we are now, and he says you might have it abundantly, he's not talking about the house and the car you drive, is he? Now, he may give you that, but that can go away as quick as you got it. Grace, peace, freedom from fear. I find lately, as I share the gospel with people, I'll show them, I won't give them the little steps to peace yet, but I'll just show them, you know, they'll read steps to peace. I had a couple of technicians over at the house here recently, and I showed him that, and boy, one of them just said just like that. He said, boy, I need peace. I've had others say, man, that's what I need. Men, they're just, they're hurting, all of them. 
out there. And we've got the answer. We've got the answer. The only answer. Hmm. Therefore, Jesus Christ is true life, isn't he? Wow. True life in Jesus Christ is found in putting our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Putting our faith in God through Jesus Christ means we surrender our will to his authority. A person will render their will to God's authority when God's convicting grace makes that a person aware of their own lostness or depravity or their hopelessness or his judgment. I really enjoyed Lee last night and uh, his talk and uh, this point that the woman obviously had an encounter before she reacted the way she did to Jesus weeping. We all know that we're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. We're also sanctified by grace through faith. Until God's convicting grace makes us aware. <laughs> Men may be and are aware that they sin. You just ask them, you ever broke one of the Ten Commandments? You ever lied? Well, uh, yeah, and so on. But what they don't know is they're dead, that they're separated from God. And that's the grace of God that opens our eyes. Hmm. It's a marvelous thing as Dan was talking. It's a marvelous thing when you see that happen. I was at the gym here, oh, it's been three or four months ago, and one of the ways I sometimes, if the occasion's right, kind of get into it, uh, you see a lot of them wearing crosses, cross necklaces. So I'll just say to them, well, I like your necklace. Uh, does that have any personal significance? And if they're a Christian, well, they'll go there, and if they're not, so I was in the gym, and this young guy, he looked like he might be in his early 20s, and he had this cross. I, so I said that to him. I like your cross. Uh, does it have any personal meaning? He said, no. He said, I'm, uh, I'm going to church, and I'm in the Bible study, but uh, I'm trying to find out how to become a Christian. Well, that's like saying sick him to a bulldog, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we pulled out the steps to peace and went through it, and he prayed to receive Christ right there in the gym. Yeah. 
Fellas, that was no accident. That was providential. And the same thing happens to you every day. And as Dan said, you just don't want to leave home without it. You probably heard that little saying on something else too, haven't you? But yeah, don't leave home without it because you never know. But when you don't leave home without it, then you know what? You kind of start expecting it. And guess what? God's kind of the same mind. He, as you hear Dan. Hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, man will surrender his authority, his will to authority, when he fears the possible consequences or judgment. Hmm. A man's driving over the speed limit down the fair, the Safeway. I'm sure glad we Christians don't ever do that. So, But a man is driving over the speed limit down the freeway and he sees a police speed trap coming up. What first thing happens? <laughs> a little fear strikes him and he hits the brakes, right? Yeah, yeah. See, men, there is no fear. There is no authority without fear. There is no authority without fear. And there's no fear without accountability. And there's no accountability without consequences. That's why it's important that we talked about authority and judgment because there is a judgment for us. There are consequences for our behavior, how we live our life. A good example of authority without fear is no authority at all. Hmm. We see it in our country today in our sanctuary cities, don't we? They're refusing. They're refusing to enforce the law. Therefore, there's no accountability. Therefore, there's no consequences. Therefore, there's no authority, is there? And that results in violence and chaos. Hmm. Well, it is, Lee, but I tell you, let me see how much time I've got here. Let's go over. Lee? You just got me off script. <laughs> but it isn't the first time you, it's not the first time you've done that to me. <laughs> let's go over to Romans chapter 3. You just reminded me, and let's just look at it.
the question? Oh, that. How does this happen in our lives? Oh, 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 Lee's question. All right, I got it now. Lee's question was, well, how in the world did this ever happen? And so that jogged my memory to uh, Romans chapter 3. That's a little unusual at my age to have a memory. Pick up with me. The Apostle Paul is just finishing up the issue that Jews and Gentiles both are going to encounter judgment. And then in, I'm going to pick up in verse 10. Well, let me pick a nine. That would be better. What then? Are we better than they? In other words, the Jews didn't think that they, because they were God's people, that they were going to encounter this judgment. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written. Now, he's describing the non-believer. He's describing you and I before God, by his grace, interacted and opened our eyes that we were dead. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is none. There is none, not even one. Okay, now drop down to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, let's go back up to verse 13. Lee said, how did this happen? Well, we just said that there's no understanding. They don't seek for God. And then in verse 13, it says, their throats are an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Those whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There's your violence. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how it happens without Jesus. Hmm. See, man, the professing Christian that says he does not fear God, what he's saying is that his dominant hope or his fear is something other than God. A man, a wealthy man, hopes in his wealth. What does he fear? <laughs> he, 
He fears losing it, doesn't he? You'll always fear in the direction of your hope. And let me remind you, let me remind me, hope and fear, I mean hope and faith are intrinsically related. We all know this if we just think about it. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things what? Hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So hope determines what we put our faith in, doesn't it? And if we put our hope in that, we put our hope in it because we are hoping for gain, aren't we? And we'll fear in the direction of our gain for fear we'll lose it. So if we're really hoping in God for heaven, for forgiveness, for intimacy, for peace, for grace, for whatever, then I'm going to fear him because I know I don't want to lose it. So, hope and fear are intrinsically related. Again, the professing Christian that says he doesn't fear God is saying that he's got a hope somewhere else other than God. In fact, any professing Christian that does not fear God will sooner or later create havoc in his own relationship with Christ at best and will have no basis for assurance that he's even a Christian. Therefore, fear in and fear of Christ brings us to our fourth tenet is love is the goal of life. Well, let me stop there. Have we stirred up any thinking? Do you want to questions, thoughts? Well, I have the gift of, I don't have any questions because I'm doing real well, I think. I say it humbly, but uh, because I've got the gift of uh, ambiguity <laughs> and confusion. So uh, I think I'm perking along all right. So please, you got a microphone for this gentleman? Jerry, are you ready? <laughs> Uh, you gave the analogy that if a uh, person's hope is in wealth, then his fear is that he will lose that. Yes. And I'm just trying to correlate it with what you said. If I'm really hoping in God for peace and joy and everything, then I'm going to fear God. Um, It seems like if I use the exact same correlation, it should be I fear losing God like I would fear losing money. So I'm just trying to 
wrap my mind yeah, around. I'm going. I'm going to. I, I fear. I could fear that and all that he can provide for me. The man that fears losing his wealth. Ultimately, if you really dug into it, it's all that wealth represents for him. And so we fear God because it's all that he represents for us. Forgiveness of sin. Peace. A future. Go ahead. So maybe I fear him because he, he can take or give those things that yeah. I'm really hoping for. That's true. But also, also, my friend, I don't have to understand the book of Revelation like Jerry does. But if I just read, just do a cursory read of the book of Revelation and see the wrath of God, if that doesn't strike fear in my life, I don't know what will. Yeah. And... Because God is righteous and he's just, anytime his righteousness or justice is violated, which is sin, then there, are, there is going to be a judgment. There are going to be consequences. And let's just think about, you remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Struck dead. Yeah. And they were being generous. They bought, sold this property, and they were going to give it away. And then they decided, well, we'd keep a little. But they lied to God. And bam. How about, let's just go back to the time of Noah. Now, we, I don't think we can comprehend. We, we think about 9-11, fellas, with 3,000-some, and it breaks our heart. But God wiped out all of humanity except the family. That's the wrath of God. God is not to be messed with. That's why you fear him ultimately. I'm, I, I'm terrified of him. Because I know he's cut me so much slack If I dare rebel on him, I'm afraid he'd hang me upside down by my private parts or something. Thanks, Winston. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ultimately, it's God's judgment. Yeah. Anything else? Good question. There we go. I know Jerry has all the answers, but I want you to answer it for me. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Okay. Uh, can you expand on hope, on, on temporal hope and eternal hope? Uh-huh. And what is, for this group, what are the best practices of, I guess, balancing between the two? Yes, yes. Yeah, and that is, that's a challenge for all of us because... There is nothing wrong with temporal hope. We all have to have temporal hope. You take a man that loses hope, he's either going to, he's going to go into despair or resignation that life just, or 
That's why some people commit suicide, because they've lost all hope. So we have to have hope, and there's nothing wrong with temporal hope. There's nothing wrong with wanting a better job or what have you. Not at all. The issue is, what are we hoping in, or who are we hoping in to deliver what we're hoping for? <coughs> and boy, that, there's a, there is a invisible line there that we all walk in is, am I really hoping in God for this? And then, am I okay if he doesn't deliver in the way that I'd like for him to? And that's where it comes down to trying to stay in a posture of your will, not my will. And I don't know about you guys, but I have to review that every day. And I personally, I ask God every day, God, please, Help me not presume on you. Take him for granted. And if I am, pull me up short. Because I do not want to be there. It's destructive. But that's a challenge in terms of, am I really... That's why, guys, without, without extended time a prayer that moves beyond just ordinary prayer of asking God what we like or need, but then getting down to the real prayer of, and there's nothing wrong with that, because the Bible says you ask, you have not because you ask not, so we certainly do. But getting down to the point of, as David said to himself, when he was under stress. He was talking to himself. He says, my soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. David at that point was under tremendous stress. They were trying to kill him, dethrone him. And he was trying to get himself settled down. And he says, my soul? See, he's talking to himself. That's who we really are, is in the soul. That's, that's the real man. My soul, wait in silence for God only. I don't know whether you guys have noticed, but I think we're, as a bunch, we're not really very good waiters. We're in a hurry, aren't we? My soul wait in silence. Whew. We're not that good of listeners either, are we? We'd rather talk than listen. And David says, and this is the part of prayer that we absolutely need to keep our soul in total cadence with the Holy Spirit. My soul, wait in silence. Are we listening?
do we take time to listen? Guys, without it, our cultural eater lunch. My soul, by the way, that's, I'd encourage you to memorize that verse. That is Psalm 62 5. Psalm 62 5. I don't know whether I did you any good or not, my friend. Anyone else? Yes, sir. So how do you see the distinction between hope and desires, and what do you see as the, how, the relationship between the two? Good question. I think desire, to me anyway, I don't know how accurate this is going to be, but for me, I have a lot of desires, but I think a desire moves to a hope when I take some action that way, you know? I can have a desire for many things, but they're just desires unless I take an action. And that's, that's as I take an action, which is, by, is faith, really. Faith is, is active, isn't it? It's an action. And faith always moves in the direction of your hope because your hope determines what you're going to hope in. So... I think I just talked around circles with you. I don't know whether I did you any good or not. So, Anyone else? Well, let's go to the fourth tenet. Love is the goal of life. Jesus said, told us that the greatest two commandments were love God and love people. So, how do we love God? Well, let's just, last resort, let's go to the Bible, huh? John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You know, even a, Real estate huckster like myself can understand that. I don't have to go to seminary like Lee did to understand that, do we? He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. How do I love God? I command. I obey him. Simple. And he who loves me, listen to this, he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Wow. Don't, don't run by that. That's big. And I will love him. Jesus said, I love him. Now we got, and will disclose myself to him. Jesus says, now, if you obey me, I will disclose myself to you. See, men, we can read the Bible all, all we want, but to receive un, spiritual understanding and knowledge, it has to be revealed. Christianity is a religion, if you want to call it that. I don't like to, but I will. It's a religion of revelation. 
And God says, you obey me and I'll reveal myself to you. Hmm. Jesus says in John 7, 17, if any man is willing to do my will, then he will know of the teaching. See, if we are in the Bible and reading it, but we're not sold out, we're not willing to do whatever Jesus has in mind for us, he says, fine, go ahead and read, but you're not going to understand anything. You're not going to be changed. But if we're willing, obey. Obey is only an outcropping of our willingness. Wow. The greatest experience a believer can have is to have God the Father and Jesus not only to love us, but disclose themselves to us through the Holy Spirit. This relationship of God with the believer entails a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, gradually, gradually renewing the inner man, the soul of the believer of you and I. That's who we really are. That's who we're going to take into eternity. We're going to shed these old bodies. I say old. Some of you guys aren't old. I is. (laughs) And we're going to get a new body. Yeah. And we're going to take our soul into eternity in the condition that we have prepared it through God's grace here on earth. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to wait on you because this is really important, fellas. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying. That's the body. Yet our inner man, there's that inner man I was mentioning to you. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction, that sounds like living life, doesn't it? is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. See, God is doing something in our inner man. What is the inner man? It's our soul, but the inner man is that part of me, you, which is renewed and controlled by God. Hmm. Although the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we still have a sensual side, don't we? We call it the flesh. The inner man isn't reason, nor the rational man, but rather the renewed part 
of who we are. Again, that which is controlled by the Holy Spirit, which is in conflict with the old man, which is the same as what we call the flesh. So back to our Corinthians passage. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says, what is happening to us, men? What are we gaining at the soul level is absolutely... You can't compare it to any other benefit we might ever have experienced or will. Because it's called knowing God. And we were talking about temporal desires and eternal desires. Well, verse 18 might give us a little clue. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And as you men know, the only two things that are eternal are people and the Word of God. I lost my wife, uh, actually, two days ago. It's been 20 months. I always remember the ninth of the month. And uh, her attitude was about death. She knew she's going to die. It was the same as the Apostle Paul's. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. <laughs> couple, three days before she died, I told a couple of you guys this story. I was sitting on her bed in the hospital, and she said to me, am I going to die? I said, sweetheart, it looks like you are. And she started to cry. When she stopped crying, then she started to cry again. She says, well, who's going to take care of you? <laughs> but death wasn't an issue, fellas. Death, oh death, where is thy sting? <laughs> glory, glory, huh? We've got the victory. Yes, 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 yes. Huh. Here in this verse talks about the inner man, our soul, being renewed, renewed day by day. That word renewed in the Greek means renewed completely by God. And God is renewing our soul. That particular Greek word is only used one other place in the New Testament. And I'll just read it for time's sake. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10, you can go there on your own later. He's talking about putting on the new man instead of the old man. 
Do not lie to one another since you laid aside your old self with its evil practices and have put on your new self who is being renewed. There's the same word. The only other time it's been used. 3, 9, and 10. Are being renewed in a true knowledge. Wow. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God. According to the image of the one who created him. See, men, as we allow God to have his way in our life, he begins to reveal himself to us. But not only that, but there's a mystical thing that happens far beyond our intellect and understanding that he does as this renewing process is where God is gradually, I think, weaving a tapestry of Christ himself on our soul and in our soul, in our inner man, to where God's will is that we become totally Christ-like in our soul. I've got a real estate term in Ephesians 3.10 in my Bible for renewed. Got the word renovated. Renovated. Your, his version says renovated. There we go. There we go. See, the true believer in God, God is gradually renewing our inner man, our new self, our new man, in the likeness of God. You might say that God's renewing our inner man. He is threading within our soul his agape love. Agape love becomes a part of who we are. <laughs> wow. He's equipping us not only to agape love God and others, but to be love as Jesus is love. And that's the purpose of our life, to know God and let him renew our soul in preparation of spending paradise with him. I've wondered, and it's just wondering on my part, but I've wondering, we talk about rewards. We're going to be, for faithfulness here, we're going to have rewards in heaven. I've wondered, and be careful now, because I'm just wondering. I'm wondering whether... Because the Bible just doesn't tell us what those rewards are. It doesn't give us any definition of them. But I've wondered whether the condition, the rewards might be tied to the condition of how much of our soul is really renewed. Because renewing, remember the renewed, the, the inner man 
the inner man is the part of the soul that's under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we come in. Thy will, not my will. So we have a, we don't do the renewing, but we have to show up and be your will, not mine. So I've often wondered whether there's some relationship there. So the Apostle Paul summarizes it well at the end of his prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3. And he's prayed for the Ephesians, which would be a prayer for us, and we don't have time to go through the whole prayer. Although he does, in the opening of that prayer, he says, I ask God that he would, by the riches of his glory, grant to you to be strengthened, listen to this, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And then he closes out that prayer to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now notice that, fellas. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. We're talking about the inner man and what God is doing when he renews. And that is mystical. That's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our rationale, our, our intellect. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wow. Kind of puts you in awe, doesn't it? Well, there you have it. Now abide faith, hope, and love. These, grace to these is love. But there you have it. The goal of life is love. Jesus Christ is life. Jesus Christ is love. Jesus Christ is a life of love. Men, let us, uh, let us close on that note. Let me pray, please. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Please help each one of my brothers here and myself to have a burning desire to know you. If there's anything in my life, any of our lives that's a hindrance to your dear Holy Spirit having total, total freedom in our lives, please show us so we can, with your grace, change for your glory, for your pleasure. Father, help us 
to increase in our awe of you. Father, just as we look at your creation, where we're at, it gives us this little sense of awe of who you are in all your beauty, all your glory. Help us be the men you want us to be. Please, please. In Christ's name, amen.